Hello and welcome to Bootstrap, the podcast for software bootstrappers. If you are running a software company or looking to start one, then this is the podcast for you. I'm your host, Steve McLeod. Today I'm joined by Andy Bryce from, well, lots of things. Welcome, Andy. Hi, Steve. Andy is a friend and a fellow bootstrapper. I've learned a lot from Andy over the years due to his willingness to help on forums and from his blog, successfulsoftware.net. Andy, tell us a bit about your products. Okay, so the main product, the one that I started with in 2005 is Perfect Table Plan. So that's a a planner for events. And I'm sure some people have heard the background to this before, but Basically, I was getting married and I thought, oh, there's an interesting little optimization problem of seating people. And I, I have a background in, in physics and optimization. So I thought I could produce a piece of software to do that. And I, I wrote a, a rough first version and it's just sort of gone from there, really. So, yeah, it's trying to solve that combinatorial nightmare of who to sit next to who at, at an event. And, and typically at weddings, you might only have about you know, 50 or 100 people, but but now it's gets used for events that can have up to 4,000 people, I think is the biggest. So trying to solve that is is quite a challenge and there's lots of sort of visualization issues and other things that go with it. So that's that's the main product, the table planner. Um, a few years ago, I also produced Hyperplan, which is a, a visual planning tool for desktop, um, runs on Windows and Mac, like perfect table plan. So that's out there. That's a sort of productivity stroke project planning tool. And just recently, uh, I started working on Easy Data Transform, which is a another desktop product for Windows and Mac for transforming data from one form to another. And that's still in beta. It's sort of early stages at the moment. And today, we'll mostly talk about Easy Data Transform. Andy, that's three significant products. And you've done all of this as a one-person company, right? Yeah, that's right. It's been uh, just me. My wife does some of the bookkeeping. And obviously, I outsource bits and pieces that I'm not very good at, things like logo design or or website design. But I I probably do about 90, 95% of the work myself. That includes support? Yeah. Yeah, I do all the support. A lot of people are in a rush to outsource their support. But um, to me, it's a really key part of understanding you know, how good the product is, what, what's wrong with it, how you can improve it is talking to customers either by email or sometimes on, on the phone. So to hand that off to a third party, you know, you're sort of effectively putting the blinkers on. And I mean, something like Perfect Table Plan, I don't use that every day. I'm not planning events. So it's really crucial for me that I'm, I'm talking to the customers and finding out what they think about the product and how they think it can be improved. Something like easy data to transform or hyper plan, then, then I'm using those myself. So I've sort of got myself as a, as a guinea pig. But um, even then, you still get a lot of perspectives from talking to other people. And as soon as the product gets quite big and functional, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult to... Yeah, as soon as the product gets big, you know, there's only so much insight you can get into it. You really need to get other perspectives. Mm -hmm. What I find about doing support myself, which I also do for my latest product, Feature Upvote, is that, as you say, it keeps you very much in touch, close to what customers are saying. 
And I think people rush to outsource that because support can be a headache, but you can address support headaches other ways. For example, there are steps you can take to reduce support. Have you gone down that path at all? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the first thing is that... I mean, if, if one person reports a problem, then maybe it's not that important or maybe it's not really a problem or maybe it's them. But as soon as two or three people have told you about something, well, then it's it's your issue and you really need to address it because otherwise people are going to keep emailing you and ringing you about it. So the first thing, obviously, is to address people's concerns and try and engineer out, you know, e- either by rewording or or improving features or even removing features trying to improve the user experience so you don't get that complaint in future. But there's all sorts of little things you can do. So for example, just having in the help menu, you know, contact the developer. And then before it takes them through to the website with your email address on, it points them at the FAQ and, you know, and taking the time to write an FAQ, some people will look at that. So it's trying to do some of those things to get them to either not have the problem or, or to answer their own problem because it, it does get very tedious when you've answered the same problem <laughs> for the for the thousandth time um, so you really want to try and avoid that that chuckle i did halfway through that sentence was uh, was me expressing pain from identifying with exactly what you're saying yeah as products get bigger and more complicated you can't expect everybody to understand everything you know people have very different backgrounds and levels of experience so you're never going to get to the point where you're not going to get any support at all. I mean, you could try the Amazon model where you hide your phone number and email and, and you just don't reply to people. But, you know, you can do that if you're Amazon. You, you can't do that if you're, you're a small company like us. You're not going to get a very good reputation. No, no. We had a problem with uh, my older products with people not being able to enter in license keys. They should have copied and pasted them, but people thought they were supposed to type it in manually or they didn't know how to copy and paste. Yeah. And we solved that by actually having a video we created that actually showed people how to copy from the license key email or the email containing license key, how to then switch to the application, paste it, acting as if from the assumption that the person had almost no computer experience. Uh, it's amazing the sort of things you do have to show over and over again. And Yeah, it's, a, it's a shock to most techies that some <laughs> people don't know how to cut and paste. I mean, it really is quite extraordinary. And sometimes these people who usually have AOL addresses, that's usually the clue. They sort of get quite angry and they think it's your fault because uh, what's that effect called Dunning-Kruger, I think. You know, they, they don't understand how lousy their computer skills are and they think it's something wrong with your software. And there's, there's no point in, in saying to them, you know, you, I'm sorry, but you're just hopeless with a computer. You, you just have to be respectful, you know, that maybe... They don't use a computer very much and try and make it easy for them. But yeah, it, it is a shock when you come across somebody who's, who's that unskilled with a computer, but it does happen. Are those the moments in which you really think about maybe I should be outsourcing <laughs> support? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, my, I mean, I have some wonderful customers. I, I don't want to be rude about them, but um, my heart does sink slightly <laughs> every time I see a sale to somebody with an AOL address. <laughs> There's a definite hierarchy. I mean, AOL is at the bottom. They tend to be very elderly people who, who are still using AOL for some unfathomable reason, which gives you a clue to how technically unsophisticated they are. And then there's Hotmail and then Gmail people tend to be much more able. And, you know, there's this sort of this hierarchy of email addresses. It would be quite fun to uh, 
tweak my shopping cart so it, it looks at their email address and changes the um, the license price according to what their email address is. But uh, probably is not legal. That's more when you know there's probably going to be more pain. Yeah. So let's talk about Easy Data Transform. This is a product I really like. And in fact, I'm a bit jealous. I wish it was my product. I think it has a lot of potential. If you can, listeners, I recommend you to go to Andy's blog, which we will link in the show notes, and watch the three-minute video demo of Easy Data Transform. In that Andy's showing us how you can use it to clean up lists of data that come from different sources. You can merge them, deduplicate, improve the formatting, add separate columns. It's really quite a wonderful tool that us programmers just think about as something you do in SQL or with Excel formulas, and you've managed to somehow avoid that. Tell us a bit why you decided Easy Data Transform was something you wanted to create. Well, as with all the other products, uh, I was just trying to scratch my own itch, really. So I'd have cases like, for example, I wanted to email everyone who was on the perfect table plan mailing list, but um, not people who'd unsubscribed and not people who'd upgraded to the latest version and not people who'd had a refund. And trying to sort of go through and do that sort of data manipulation in Excel or something is, is horrible. And, and I'm not very good with SQL. Um, you know, I'm a C++ programmer from a sort of scientific background and so very much from a sort of procedural programming side. So trying to do that stuff is a bit of a nightmare. So I I wrote a, a really sort of janky, horrible, two-pane data manipulation tool years and years ago. And I've sort of used that a bit for doing those sort of data manipulations, but it, it really wasn't very good. And as soon as you've done a couple of transforms or the phone rung, you couldn't remember where you were and you potentially had to go back and do it all again. It wasn't reproducible. So I was, um, I was sitting in some conference or something and I suddenly had a brave way. Why don't I do that like a sort of data flow? that you can go through step by step without programming and do the transforms. And of course, it's since turned out that I'm not the only person that had that idea. There are other products out there. But I wanted to sort of do it with and put my own spin on it. So yeah, so, so to summarize, it's basically scratching my own itch of trying to do fairly sophisticated, powerful data transformation step by step in a reproducible manner, but without programming. Um, and I mean, there, I've had a look around and there are other tools that can, that can do this, but they tend to be very expensive and, and sometimes quite clunky and corporate and difficult to use. So there seems to be, to me, this gap in between sort of writing your own SQL to do it or Python or whatever at one end and sort of these really expensive corporate tools. I mean, a lot of people just use Excel for things like this, but it, it's really not very good at that sort of thing. Um, I seem to have mostly made a career out of trying to stop people using Excel for various things. <laughs> I've noticed that uh, quite a lot of people who use Excel actually have almost no knowledge of the functions or even that you can add numbers or uh, auto format. So uh, I think that possibly the people for whom Easy Data Transform is also a really good product. You have all the options available there that you can see this very visual concept yeah, I've tried to keep it as visual as possible. I mean, there are dedupe functions in Excel, but I must have used Excel for about 20 years before I found that out. Um, you know, know it's them. quite, yeah, there is a dedupe function in there, but it's it's not great. You know, I mean, Excel is brilliant at what it does, but, you know, to try and use it to dedupe lists and tables is a bit like, you know, hammering in a, hammering in a nail with a banana. You know, you could probably do it, but it's... 
<laughs> you might get through quite a few bananas. You know, it's it's really not the best tool for the job. I mean, interestingly, it's one of my main competitors for Perfect Table Plan as well. A lot of people do their seating plans in Excel, which is maybe okay if you've got sort of 20, 30 people for a party. But can you imagine trying to do that when you've got, a you know, a, a thousand people or more? Yeah, yeah. Well, Excel is an alternative to just about anything, it sounds yeah. like. So I wanted to ask you about the name Easy Data Transform. Uh, it's almost a, a cliche now amongst our product development people that naming is hard, and that's always been my experience. What factors went through your mind when you settled on the name Easy Data Transform? Oh, yeah, naming is really hard. Well, I, I sort of tried to find something where I could get a .com domain that had a name that was easy to remember, that was reasonably descriptive, that had some some of the keywords in that people were likely to search on, things like data or transform. And it was really hard. I came up with a list of about 100, 100 and I took the top 20 or 30, and I showed them to people. And, you know, people didn't like them. And it, we just went round and round in circles. I spent, I spent days on this. And, and also any pretty much anything you can think of that's got data in it, you know, the domains taken, anything sensible like data wizard or data shark or anything like that, they're all gone um, or have some sort of service that's named after that, even if they don't have a domain. So I just went for a, a pretty descriptive one. I thought, well, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to make it easy to transform your data. And so I went for, for the simplest possible name. It's not a brilliant name, but it's, I think it's fairly descriptive. The downside of it is that if you come up with a really unique name that you know nobody else is using at all that doesn't have English words in it, then you can completely dominate that search once people know about you because if they're typing that thing in, they're only going to want to get to you. Whereas if you type easy data transform in, all, all sorts of other stuff is probably going to come up as well. But you know, I just got so frustrated in the end, I just had to come up with something. And, and the very sort of simple, simple naming formula that I've used for perfect table plan you know, it seems to have worked. It's just very d- descriptive. I guess the downside of that is you can't trademark it because it's it's too descriptive of what it what it does. But we'll see whether it was a good choice or not. Oh, I didn't know you couldn't trademark names for that reason. Well, in the UK, I talked to someone at a show once, and he was a, somebody from the uh, the government, something to do with intellectual property, and he said something like "perfect table plan." You couldn't. You could trademark the color and the logo, you know, the, the fonts and the logos and everything else that used to describe it, but you couldn't trademark the actual name because it's it's basically descriptive of something generic. Maybe if you called it like armadillo table plan or something, then you would be able to trademark that. But they said if you call it something like perfect table plan, you probably wouldn't. But I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so... Yeah. What I like about the name is how easy it is to understand. Like sometimes when I'm listening to podcasts and there's a, a sponsored spot at them at the beginning advertising some product and I listen to that podcast several times and they keep mentioning the same product. And I, I can't understand what the name is, <laughs> <laughs> particularly if it's being pronounced with an accent I'm unfamiliar with. And I think anybody will understand easy data transform. Well, I hope so. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of terms around there that you can use, things like data blending and ETL for extra export transform load. You know, there's a whole uh, sea of acronyms, but I wanted to avoid those because, you know, I'm sort of mm. after the people who probably would use Excel. They're not sort of probably not, well, they're certainly not programmers because, you know, the programmers probably use Excel or Python or something. You know, it's some marketing guy who's got a big 
massive, great big spreadsheet that he needs to analyze and massage into a particular form for a report or to combine with some other data. You know, those are the sort of people I'm after. They're not going to know all these acronyms. They're not programmers or, or data science people. They're people who've just got a lot of data that they need to munch together into some different form. Um, so they're the sort of people I'm after. Of course, it remains to be seen as to whether I can reach that market and part of the reason i'm doing an extended beta is i'm I'm just putting it out there for free at the moment to just see what sort of take up there is uh, what sort of feedback I, I get and i've already had some very useful feedback from people who've been using the tool on real problems and so i'm sort of just trying to iterate on that you know doing it around my day job which is working on perfect table plan and and hyper plan to try and improve it and find out more about the market, how much I can charge for it, what the different sort of niches and segments in the market are, what extra features I need. So you've had some good feedback on all of those ideas, on all of those themes so far? Yeah, I think it's still pretty early days. And so a lot of feedback has come from sort of people I I know or that read my blog or whatever. I, have, I haven't started to get much feedback yet from from people that i haven't interacted with before but i haven't really pushed it very much at the moment you know i've i've mentioned it on my blog and on sort of newsletters for hyperplan and perfect table plan but i mean obviously they're not very targeted for that mm. because you know they're quite different markets i mean people who use perfect table plan often have big complex guest lists that they need to feed in and you know, usually they will manipulate in Excel. So maybe some of them might find easy data transform useful, but it's not really my target market, which isn't a bit of an issue because I've got three products in three really completely different markets. And from a purely business point of view, it'd be better to have, you know, all of your products in the same market so you could cross sell between them. But I just couldn't think of anything else interesting that I wanted to do for event planners or not that interested me anyway. And so the way it happens with me is that, you know, an idea sort of pops up in the back of my head and then starts burning a hole until I have to do something about it. And um, often it's, you know, not commercially ideal. It doesn't fit in exactly with the market I'm already in, but I'm not going to do something that's boring just because I think it might make some money. Well, if you're already earning enough, uh, income to cover your the needs of you and your family and you've decided you don't want to grow a big company you have to choose to think about what you actually want to work on don't you you can't just do whatever's going to make the most money that's just yeah i think that's insane yeah i mean you know you go and do a nine-to-five job if if you want to do that i mean i've got to work on something that i find is interesting especially being a sort of one-man band product developer you know if something's successful you're going to be working on it for years and years i've been working on perfect table plan for since 2005 now you know so it's 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 a pretty major commitment so you've got to pick something that you think is going to be interesting and and something like perfect table plan has got lots of challenges in it things that people hadn't done before or certainly hadn't done very well which i've you know tried to do you know all things around optimization and visualization and you know, it's been quite an interesting uh, thing to do that and also to be able to handle all these different niches within seating planning. There's sort of, um, you know, weddings and military events and diplomatic events and, you know, so there's a whole load of different ones. And then there's all the issues around names which are different in different countries and, you know, so there's a whole loads of stuff to do. So, so 
it's been a lot more interesting than than you might think. You know, I talk to some people about table plans and their eyes sort of glaze over a bit and you think they, they sort of think, well, you know, surely that's something you solved in six months and then you went on something else. But, you know, it's sort of fairly fractal. The more you dig into it, the more subtleties and complications there are. I think it's a naive opinion of just about any software product that it's simple. It might look simple when you describe it in three sentences, but software is by its very nature so complicated, uh, especially when people are using it around the world in different countries, different regions, and different contexts. Uh, yeah, there's, there's nothing easy about software. Not even Hello World is, is easy if you think <laughs> about it. Like, does it have to be internationalized? You know, does it have to, uh, to support different uh, platforms uh how do you how do you monetize it well, i don't know how you can monetize hello world but well somebody said there's three different levels of software there's the something there's something you write just for your own use and it can be you know terrible and have an awful user interface and maybe crashes a lot it doesn't really matter if you're the only person using it and then the next level which is an order of magnitude more difficult is to write some software that's used by people you know maybe bespoke software in your own company and then the user interface still doesn't have to be that great. It doesn't need much documentation. It can crash occasionally because they can come and talk to you and say, oh, well, you know, something's gone wrong and you can fix it. And then another order of magnitude again is to be able to write software that somebody you're never going to meet is able to use. And then suddenly it needs documentation. It needs a slick UI. It needs to not crash. You know, it's just much, much more difficult than writing some piece of bespoke software. So, it just takes much more effort. And, and when you use a piece of software, you know, you, you, you can only ever see the tip of the iceberg, you know, a few buttons mm. and some user interface. You've got no idea about the sort of the depth of complexity and all the stuff it's doing underneath. So, I mean, one of the most complicated bits in Perfect Table Plan is when you're importing a guest list, it's intelligent enough using all these heuristics to try and pull that guest list apart and trying to work out which is name, which is your first name, which is your title, which is your last name. Is this one person or is this a couple? You know, so it's got quite a lot of stuff built in to do all that sort of stuff, which is something that you wouldn't even think about if you were writing a table planner. You, you wouldn't even think about the complexities of parsing a guest list to try and pull all that stuff apart. So you only find out about all these complexities once you start getting into something. Yeah, and they're never ending. They, they keep changing as time goes on and the world is a dynamic place. Like, for example, yeah. when, when the military decides to use your software and then you have to think about, well, generals and admirals and colonels and how do we handle the, the retired thing that you sometimes put after a general's name and so on. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, it's got a loads of stuff to do with that. And yeah, I mean, the way the military and diplomatic events are seated is completely different to how a wedding is seated. You know, all, all these things that you don't know about until you start getting into this domain. And I'm sure every other piece of software is the same. You sort of have this fairly naive view that it's pretty simple. And then you, you get into it and you suddenly start learning about this world of complexities. Hmm. And then the difficult bit is to try and work out which... 20% of the, the problem you can solve gives 80% of, of the value. Because obviously you can just keep adding more and more complexity to the product, but it, it then gets to the point where nobody can use it. It's just too complicated. So it's, it's always this balancing act between doing enough and, and it being too complicated. And also things obviously get more buggy as they get more complicated. So I'm sort of doing that, going through that at the moment with easy data transform and trying to work out 
you know, what's enough functionality to make it really useful, but to keep it relatively simple. You know, it's got easy in the title. So, you know, <laughs> I, I can't, you know, start adding loads and loads of like really, yeah, the name's not going to fit very well if I start adding masses of functionality and then heading down an enterprise route for it. What I'm hearing is that you've really thought a lot in advance about your positioning and your market. You know that it's not for developers. It's not for people who already know how to do SQL or who know what ETL stands for. And you know that it's so easy you put it in the title. So yeah. <laughs> well, that's you, the aim. Yeah, that's the aim. I really like it actually so that when you do get support tickets from people saying, could you add this you know, integration with something, you can say, well doesn't really fit into what we're doing, whether you say that to the customer or if you answer in another way, but it really helps you keep that narrow focus. Yeah, so the way I see that is when you start a product, I mean, so so in my, I mean, some people have this, you know, they go out and they spend ages schmoozing potential customers and getting people to sign a letter saying they will buy it when they create it. And that sort of process has never worked for me. My, my sort of process that is that I just, have an idea for something that scratches an itch that I have. And I, I talked to a few people and did a bit of research. And then basically I program like crazy and create something. And then I sort of throw it out there and let people use it and then see if anyone's interested and then hopefully start to get some feedback. And then it's sort of that bootstrapping process of give people something, listen to the feedback that they give you, filter that feedback and then try and, you know, you can often end up in a completely different place to where you started. but Obviously, you know, you don't take all the feedback. You, you have to have a vision for the product. And then maybe maybe that vision for where the product's going will change over time, depending on the feedback. But you can't just do everything that people suggest or you'll end up with some abomination. Um, so I think you do have to have an idea of, of where you're going, but you have to be prepared to change that idea slowly over time. It sounds like a really good approach. You said that you, you programmed like crazy, coded like crazy to get it out there. How much time did you spend to get the first version out that you actually put in front of other people? I can't remember now. I think it was about, yeah, two or three months, I think, of working, oh, not full-time, because obviously I have to keep Perfect Tape Plan and Hyper Plan moving along and doing support and making releases and whatever, but probably the majority of the time for several months just to produce, yeah, the basic version that illustrated the concept. Because, I mean, you can sort of go out to people and say, well, I'm going to do this thing and it's going to look like this. But it, I think it's very difficult. I, I didn't really know what it was going to look like until I'd created it. And that, it's been the same for all the other products I've done. I, I had an idea, but you, know, I, I, you can't really sell something that you don't really know what it's going to look like. You don't really know what it looks like until you've created it and been through some of these, these problems and issues and come up with some sort of design. Yeah. Some people would say you can do that, but it's never been something I've, I would feel comfortable with. I feel the, like it's uh, vaporware. I like to actually have something that kind of meets what I'm promising. I sort of done that approach. So when I, when I did a training course for people who wanted to learn to create software products and ran that several times, and and it was a big commitment to write all the course materials. So what I did is is I basically said, well, you know, if you want to do this course, sign up, send me a deposit. And then I, I only actually created the course once I had enough deposits to know it was worth my while because I didn't want to spend weeks creating the course and then, you know, nobody, not, not have any customers. So I think there's some, when it's a more service orientated thing, I think it's easier to do that. But 
when it's a product thing, I think it's quite hard to, you know, to just to say to people, well, this is what it's going to look like because, yeah, I didn't know what it was going to look like until I had a first working version. And before you, you started Easy Data Transform, did you do some mock-ups or some pencil drawings or you just oh, go straight into yeah. your coding tool? No, 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 no. I always start off by scribbling uh, pictures of what the user interface looks like. And, and also more these days, I also thought about the market as in roughly what could I charge for it. I looked a little bit at who the competitors were, you know, what they could do. Not, not in too much detail because I don't want to copy what anyone else has done. But, you know, was it a feasible thing? Who would the sort of customers be? How often would they use it? What sort of things would they do with it? So I, I did think about all those things. And then I sketched out the user interface. And, and only once I'd sort of done all that did I then start writing any code. I find it so hard to force myself to be that disciplined. As soon as I do the first sketch, I'm already wanting to start coding. <laughs> Yeah, the trouble is that, you know, you can sort of, yeah, you can end up going down a blind alley and, you know, an extra hour or two of thinking at the start can save you so much time later on. So I know it's tempting, but but I, unless I, I mean, even when I'm just doing like little extra features on, on the, uh, the other products I've got, I usually sketch something out first. It's just that, you know, gets the creative juices flowing. You know, if it's it, only if it's something really simple, will I you know, dive in and just start coding. So in the blog post you, you wrote where you announced DC Data Transform, you mentioned that you plan to do usability testing. Do you want to briefly say how, as just one person working from home, you would go about that? Yeah, so I've done that with a few people already. Um, and sometimes you can do it over Skype, and um, but or you can just do it in person. And it, it, there's nothing terribly clever about it. All you do is you sit somebody down in front of the software and you say, right, I want you to you know, download and install this piece of software and perform this task, you know, get these two lists and find all the people that are in list one that weren't in list two. Off you go. And then you have to stand there. And then the really hard bit is you can't help them because as soon as you start pointing things out and saying, oh, no, you've got to do this, you've got to click this button, you know, that that's that's useless you've got to let them struggle and it's 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 you've pretty got to awful. keep your mouth shut right yeah absolutely and it and it's pretty awful but <laughs> I, I will usually let people flounder around for a minute or two and then i'll give them a hint and then you just make some notes while you're doing that and then you try and improve the software you know make the button a bit bigger or rename it or whatever they get stuck on to try and avoid that next time and then you repeat the process so i've done that probably with about four or five people so far but i, ne I need to do a lot more of it because i'm positioned it as an easy to use tool you know i need to walk the walk and i need to go out and try it on a lot of people and, and and watch them using it i mean the challenge is finding people that are sort of the right fit for the product a sort ideally you want the sort of person that might buy the product and if you've got some if you're in some really obscure niche that can be quite difficult but thankfully easy data transforms fairly you know, it's fairly general. So most people who are reasonably competent with their computer, I could I could use to um, uh, to test it on. So yeah, so I've done a bit of it. I need to do some more. Um, but it, it's really surprising how few other people do this. I mean, I know the big companies like Microsoft and whatever do do this a lot. But I, I've spoken to a lot of other software, small software developers, and most of them do no usability testing at all, which to me is crazy. I mean, it's probably the single best investment you can make because. I mean, imagine if if instead of 10% of the people downloading your software buying it, imagine if 20% of them downloaded it because it 
that initial experience, that first five or 10 minutes was that much more intuitive. You know, you double your sales overnight. Yeah. And that might only take, a, you know, a few hours and a few tweaks and, and some fairly modest changes to do that. It can really make a, a big difference. So, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you forget everything else we've said, go out and do some usability testing. Get somebody using your software and watch them and don't help them and watch them flounder. It's, it's horrible. But, you know, it's a really good investment in, in your time. And in terms of the other people, you just have to bribe them. I don't know, offer them some beer or whatever, or a bottle of wine or whatever it takes to, you know. A typical usability test probably only takes, you know, 20, 30 minutes or something. You can learn a lot from that. I completely agree with everything you've said there. Uh, That really helped us get Feature Upvote pretty nice to use right from the early days. I just would find friends or acquaintances who lived local on Facebook, I'd ask them if they wanted to come over and sit through this. I would give them 20 euros uh, or maybe my girlfriend who's Italian would cook for them. Yeah, which is a pretty good good bribe. (laughs) Very good bribe. And the the problems we found so easily by doing that, we didn't, I didn't have to make a lot of changes, but it was just something often as simple as wording or getting rid of something that was confusing or moving something. I didn't have to rewrite the software. Yeah, I didn't do enough of it, but I did it. Yeah, it's often things like putting a little bit of grey text in an empty box, you know, just to give them a hint what to type, or or just popping up a little balloon help thing saying, "Well, you'll do this next." That you just show them once when they first start the software, you know, just something to get them started. I mean, there's a book about it. I think Steve Krug's "Don't Make Me Think" or something. I can't remember. Perhaps you can put it in the the show notes, and you can go and read that book, and it will tell you all about it and give you the rationale. But Really, you don't need to do any more than just get them to do it and watch them and don't help them. I mean, I suppose a slight improvement is you can get them to, to talk out loud about what they're thinking. So, you know, get them to verbalize why they're doing something because that helps you to have a bit more insight into what their mental process is and why they're stuck on a particular thing. So, get, but yeah, that's really it. Get somebody to do it, watch them, get them to talk while they're doing it and, and then improve the software and then just rinse and repeat. That's it really. That, uh, that book that Andy referred to, Don't Make Me Think by Steve Krug, it's dated, I think it's from 2010, maybe earlier, but it's good. And if you're too cheap to buy the book, you can find a video of him doing a presentation at Business of Software in the US from a long time ago in which he basically tells you his whole approach to usability testing it's it's really good to watch. It's well worth the time. Just uh, and we'll put that in the show notes as well. Hey, Andy, we're, we're getting close to running out of time, but there's one thing I wanted to ask you about it being a one-person company. Are you committed to that? Or do you think one day you might consider getting a, an intern or a part-time assistant or a full-time assistant? Well, never say never. I mean, I wouldn't get an unpaid intern because I think that's, you know, exploitation. It makes me really angry when you hear about these big, you know, billion dollar banks who get people in as as interns and then don't pay them. I think that's sort of abusive behavior. So I certainly wouldn't do that. It's a huge step going from, you know, one, well, sort of, well, it's me and my wife are the two employees of the company at the moment. But to then take somebody else on and have to have an office or even if you do it remotely to have to manage them and have payroll and all it's just a, it's a massive step 
And yeah. I just quite, yeah. And also it's a big responsibility as well. As soon as you're taking on responsibility for someone else's career and development. And so I, I admire people who do that, that grow companies that take on lots of employees and, you know, look after them and, and nurture them. And, you know, the people have been um, very successful at doing that. I think like Pody, for example, he's grown his company and, you know, he obviously takes a lot of pleasure in building a nice environment for people to work in. Um, but I just don't really want that responsibility. And also when I had a salary job, I had to do some management and I, I don't think it was one of my strong points. Um, <laughs> you know, some people are good managers and they're just, yeah, I just like creating stuff and, um, you know, building products and everything that goes with that really. Um, the danger is I think that you, you, somebody else ends up doing all the all the fun stuff, you know, all the design and the programming and all the stuff that you used to like doing. You have to hand that to somebody else, and you just spend all day staring at spreadsheets and checking people who are doing what they were supposed to. I mean, why why would I do that? You know, it's uh, mm-hmm. that doesn't sound like much fun to me. I, I'd get a salary job, I think, if that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, the other, sorry, the other thing I was going to say is that obviously, if you have a bigger headcount, then you've got more leverage in terms of you can earn a lot more money or, or lose a lot more money for that, for that matter. Mm. But I'm quite happy with how much I can earn as, as a one man band. You know, I don't need to buy a hollowed out volcano with a, with a helicopter pad, you know? So yeah, I don't feel any, never say never, but I don't feel any pressure to take on employees. Okay. And what I'm hearing is it's actually a two person band. Right. Yeah. Uh, it does sound like uh, you, you, uh, your wife is quite heavily part of this. Maybe not as to the same amount of hours worked as you, but it sounds like uh, she's an important part of what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I got to the point where I was starting to spend sort of half a day a week or more doing all the accounts and admin stuff, uh, which is pretty tedious, as you as you well know. So I, <laughs> I managed yeah. to persuade yeah. my my wife to take over that stuff. She's a bit overqualified, but. Um, <laughs> So she's doing that. And also being a one man band, when, when I write something, I, there's often missing words and, you know, it's mm-hmm. not very grammatical because I've typed faster than I could think. And so I just get her to proofread everything before it goes out the door, things like newsletters and web pages. And that's, yeah, that's really important to have that second person because, yeah. you know, you, you can't proofread your own stuff. Um, in any effective way so yeah it's very useful to have someone else and also she has to put up with me moaning about stuff you know when i get some problematic customer or something there you go that's the one that i identify with i think uh (laughs) way more than uh we realize when somebody says i'm a one-person company they're not actually telling you about the emotional support that comes from their partner or having somebody to bounce off the critical decisions. And that's something I've really come to appreciate in my own relationship. Yeah. I mean, I think if I was a sort of a bachelor living on my own, then it would be pretty lonely running a one man (laughs) business, you know, just sat down here in my office on my own. So, you know, I'm not sure it would be quite as an attractive a a proposition. Yeah. Something I've already always admired about you, Andy, is how clear you've been about wanting to say, stay a small operation and that, this is what you were chosen to do and this is what you preferred to do. I think this is more people would benefit from thinking very carefully when they start their bootstrapped company about what they actually wanted it to be and whether they wanted something that was very small, that was slow in stress, uh, or if they wanted something that was going to be very stressful because that's basically what you're choosing when you choose to grow. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, every choice you make impacts on that. And I've very much tried to. So, for example, a lot of people say, well, you know, why are you doing desktop software? You know, are you some sort of dinosaur? But <laughs> I mean, there's less stress in running desktop software because if my web server goes down, well, okay, you can't download my software, but people can still carry on doing their event planning and things just fine without it. Whereas, you know, when you're running a SaaS business, then obviously, especially if it's something fairly critical, you know, mission critical, you potentially have people screaming down the phone at you if your server goes down. Um, so, you know, so that was that was part of one choice. I mean, also, I never promised deadlines to customers. You know, people say, oh, when's the next release coming out? And I just tell them, well, when it's ready. And if you don't like that approach, well, you should go and buy someone else's software. But yeah. I, I'm not going to, you know, give myself an ulcer or cut corners to get some shonky release out just to meet some arbitrary deadline. And and that makes my life a lot less stressful. And maybe it means I have slightly lower profits, but but I'm fine with that. You know, it's not just about money at the end of the day. Well spoken. Okay, Andy, that's all we have time for today. Thanks for being on the show. Yep. And if, if anyone does want to go and try Easy Data Transform, you can go and download it at easydatatransform.com. It's for Windows or Mac. It's completely free now and probably will be free for some months to come. And yeah, I'd love to get some feedback, you know, good, bad, indifferent or whatever. Just send me some feedback. Okay. How can people send you feedback or ask you more questions about bootstrapping in general? Yeah, there's a big button at the bottom right of the software saying, send us feedback. Okay, but that couldn't be any easier. Of course, we'll have that in the show notes, the links and everything. Listeners, if you'd like to discuss more about today's topics, please go to our forum at bootstrapped.fm and join the conversation. Okay, thanks again, Andy, and have a nice day. Okay, thanks. Bye, everybody. That concludes this episode of Bootstrapped. You can discuss this episode and other bootstrapping topics on our forums at discuss.bootstrapped.fm. Until next episode, goodbye.